El Cuerpo de Cuentos, stories from an American in the Dominican Republic. Hispaniola is not that big of a place, but it's ecologically diverse. When you travel around in a bus, like Peace Corps volunteers do, that's obvious. In a few hours, you can go from a high elevation pine forest through a flat arid zone and then into a boat zipping through ocean mangroves. That range of geodiversity allows for a high rate of biodiversity. To learn more about the ecology of the island, I talked to Tim. Tim's been on the island and affiliated with the Peace Corps for over 30 years. He first came to the Dominican Republic as an environment volunteer. After his service, he stayed in the country as a consultant, working in youth development, agriculture, small business development, and monitoring and evaluation with various NGOs. He's recently rejoined the Peace Corps as the in-country training director. Here's Tim. I'm an environmentalist by nature. I've been an environmentalist since I was a little kid. I was born on Earth Day. And so not to put, to put, not to put my age into it, but in fact, first Earth Day, I was 10 years old. So I remember we were celebrating Earth Day in the school. And we had no, I don't remember even using the term, anything, but I remember we went out and planted trees and picked up garbage, and it just struck me as, as really cool. And ever since then, I kind of, and I was all, I grew up in the country, I grew up on a farm, so nature and the environment always was something that I was around, so it just kind of coalesced all the way ever since then. So my training and my education is not an environment, but I've always worked or volunteered in those areas. And then I became principal technical trainer for environment for 11 years for Peace Corps. So I get a lot, got a lot of hands-on, on-the-job training about different aspects of environment. The Dominican Republic is a wonderful country. It's probably about the size of New Hampshire, so the island's about the size of New Hampshire and, and uh, Vermont together. Um, very, very diverse. It's a country that, or it's an island basically, that has so much diversity because of the way it's, because of where it is and how the island came about. The island's basically formed through different geo, both volcanic and seismic movements. We're, around, we're in the edge of one of the most active seismic zones in the world. Um, and as such, so we have lots of mountains. We have four major mountain ranges in the Dominican Republic. Uh, so they're running each north to south uh, or east-west. So there's all these intermountain valleys in between them. So we have all these different um, microclimates and climate zones. Um, one of the ways you measure or you, you, you classify ecosystems is called the Holdridge system, which basically classifies the vegetation systems. And and for zones like this, there are 16 systems. The DR is like nine of them, plus transition zones. We have everything from, we don't have any deserts, but we have things like dry thorn forests and places with, with under 2,000 millimeters of, millimeters of rain a year. And we have other places that are cloud forests, rainforests with, with huge amounts of rainfall. So we have high mountain valleys. We have the tallest peak anywhere east of the, the, east of the Mississippi, North America, uh, or Central America, or the Caribbean. Peak of the Ward, just under 10,000 feet above sea level. We also have the lowest point uh, anywhere east of the Mississippi, which is Lago Enriquillo, which is actually 40 meters below sea level. So, between all, and then we get our, between those geological differences plus the weather patterns that we get from the ocean, 
creates all these microbiomes. So it's a very, very, very diverse country. Lots of endemism. There's 30% of the birds are only found here in, in this island. Uh, I think it's somewhere around 90% of the reptiles and amphibians are only found on this island, so they're all endemic. Uh, we don't have that many mammals, but the ones that are here, many of them are endemic. I think it's about 30% of our vascular plants are also only found on the island. So it's, the diversity is incredible. I live in a part of the island that's suffering major deforestation. Many farmers use a slash and burn technique to clear trees and plant beans and other fast-growing cash crops. But it's not so simple as you might think when you hear those words, slash and burn. Slash and burn is not an inherently bad agricultural practice. The Tainos, the native people that were here before Columbus, practiced it. Slash and burn is a good way for a small population to quickly improve soil quality. It only becomes problematic when a population gets too large to let the land rest and go fallow before the next planting. In a region of the island where there are too many people directly dependent on agriculture, the land has become deforested. The deforestation in my region is further complicated by the fact that everyone needs firewood. An open fire is the only cooking method for many people in my community and the surrounding communities. Those households that do have propane stoves supplement with cooking over the open fire, usually because they've run out of gas and either can't afford to buy more or have to wait several days while someone takes their tanks into the nearest refilling station. In the year and a half I've been living in my community, I've watched the forest recede. It's reducing the amount of rain we get and the water that's retained in the earth. When it does rain, the river becomes muddy and the pipes for our aqueduct often burst because of the amount of sediment running through them. Our water is turned off usually two to five days, once every two weeks or so, to repair and replace aqueduct tubes. It's hard not to be concerned about it, but I know it's not a crisis situation in other parts of the island. So I asked him what he thought was the greatest environmental challenge here. Spoiler alert, it's not deforestation, but we do talk about that too. I think the one that first comes to mind, or the, and maybe because we live in it and I just moved to San Domingo, is probably solid waste management. Uh, that's probably the single biggest one. Um, you know, we've got 12 million Dominicans on the island, an average of, uh, uh, we got 6 million tourists coming here a year, uh, and that doesn't count the undocumented uh, people living here, mostly from, from Haiti. So there's a lot of people on, on our half of the island now, uh, and, um, and they generate a lot of waste. Uh, yeah, estimates are somewhere around two kilos per person per day, uh, you know, and that's actually low. That's a developing country level, uh, you know, so it's less than what we produce per person in the U.S. But we don't have the systems in place to deal with that kind of that kind of solid waste. So, you know, technically, solid waste is the responsibility of municipal governments, um, and municipal governments are woefully unfunded to be able to take care of that. So, usually, when they think about solid waste, the the best they can do is. Pick, collect it, pick it up at the household level, at the, at the business level, and take it somewhere and dump it off. And they, so literally it goes to dumps, and, and they're totally uncontrolled. You know, we don't have a couple of them that talk about being landfills, but to be honest, none of them are really what we would consider a quality landfill. We're like, we're, here we're basically living in the 1970s in the U.S. when, when people still, you know, coming up for a rural area of Wisconsin where 
you know, once a month we would take our barrels, we would burn our trash in the barrels, and then once a month when it was the barrels full of ash and stuff that didn't really burn, we would take it to the county dump and dump it in a hole in the ground. You know, and that's pretty much where they're at here. We, they pick it up and they take it there. And so there's no real treatment. They're, they're not even doing a very good job of picking it up. And then when it gets to the city dump, it literally is just dumped off. And maybe in some of the cities, they covered up with a little bit of earth uh, on a sporadic level. Do you know if the Dominican Republic is undergoing uh, major population transitions in terms of urbanizing? And if that is having a big impact on the solid waste management here? I think we're at the, the apex of it now. It's obviously when I came here, it was still 30 or 35 percent. This is late 1980s. I think it was still about 30, 35% rural versus urban population, but I don't think we're at more than, and depending how they want to find it, I doubt we're at more than 20% rural populations anymore, if not maybe a little less. So besides normal population growth, there is, there was and still is exodus from rural areas to urban areas. And so a lot of it obviously comes to a place like Santiago and Santa Domingo, the big cities, but, but even smaller hubs, I mean, you can see the growth, you probably, you might see the growth in Dahabon, or, or those of us who live in rural communities can ask, you know, how many kids you have and where do they live now, and, and how many lived there before. So, yeah, you definitely see more and more people going to other places to find valid work and better services and things like that. So that's part of the problem as well. So deforestation is something that I see, and the impact that that has, not just on my community, but on the communities that are south of me as well. I've been told that it rains less, the erosion is horrific, um, but there doesn't seem to be any kind of immediate solution or solution that anybody's working on this. Um, what is your thought about Actually, you know, in some respects, that was the, like I said, I was an environment volunteer, so when we came in, that was one of our primary project goals to uh, increase, decrease deforestation and increase reforestation. Um, and maybe not through Peace Corps, but actually the country's done a pretty good job of it. Back then, deforestation rates were really horrendous. Now there's some, in fact, technically, according to the government, deforestation is in decline. So actually, the, the amount of forest cover is increasing as opposed to decreasing on a broad level in the Dominican Republic. That's the official stats. Um, I somewhat believe them. Uh, there's still a lot of illegal cutting going on. And, and that kind of illegal cutting in some of our places like on the frontier is directly tied to overall economic conditions, both for Haiti mostly for Haiti, but including for here as well, you know, and you know, there's so many factors that come into it. So yeah, there is still, especially depending where you go, and for, for instance, um, I was a volunteer in the Cordillera Septentrion now, which is that northern mountain range, um, and they went through tremendous deforestation on the dry side of the mountain, the Santiago side, back when I was volunteer, which is one reason I was set there, uh, as people were cutting down trees to make charcoal and, and firewood. That those kind of issues pretty much resolve themselves, so that that area was a stable, stabilized, and the top side of the mountain and the ocean side of the mountain is pretty much all coffee and cacao, which is which usually keeps its forest covered. But in the last five years, six years, we've had a tremendous drought in that particular part of the country, an ongoing drought, um, plus a new uh, pest that's invaded the coffee trees, um, or uh, rust, the Roya de Café, that decimated 80% of the plantations up in that particular section of the country. So those factors have caused high deforestation um, in what was traditionally a well-forested side of the mountain. So, and now they're trying to replant or, or going to other crops. And that. But in the end, you've got a poor farmer with two acres of land trying to feed, and if his coffee goes down, he's going to cut it down and, 
and plant beans if he has to, or migrate to the city, which is where I left him. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm seeing in my mountains right mm -hmm. now is because of the coffee, the plague, they call it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's all beans now. Yeah. yeah. Because you can't wait. I mean, it's a, it takes four years for a coffee tree, a new coffee tree, to start producing viable economic benefits. And if, if they don't have the support and they don't have the loans and they don't have from the government or somebody, you know, i, I got to feed my family. So they're yeah. going to... Exactly. They're going to, if it starts, if, if the tree dies and, and, the, and the rust did kill a majority of the trees, um, not the countrywide, I think it's like 60% of the plantations were destroyed. You know, so, you know, people can't wait that long. And the government is reacting, and the international, but they're acting very slow. We're talking something that's been here for over five years, and it's just in the last year and a half that they're really starting to get rust-resistant varieties in the arms or hands of the small and medium farmer. A landfill and a dump are not the same thing. A landfill is a concentrated pile of garbage, but there's physical infrastructure that separates the garbage from the natural environment, usually a subterranean plastic liner, and the garbage itself is often separated or treated in some way. In recent decades, this is the most common form of solid waste management we have in the U.S. In the Dominican Republic, dumps are common. A dump is literally just a pile of garbage. It's not treated or separated from the surrounding environment in any way. And that's the best of the situations that we have here in this country. Many places in the Dominican Republic, individual families burn their own trash in their yards. In my community, there's a municipal trash collection. It's a pickup truck and a few men. Once a week, they drive around the small town, picking up piles of garbage from a few street corners, take it to the edge of a local mountainside, dump it, and then burn it. So behind solid waste management, I asked Tim what the second greatest environmental threat is to the island. Well, it's, there's so many that go together. So yeah, I still consider it's ever seen very specific factors and, and regionally, this country, you know, there's things Things that are a crisis in the, in the mountain zones or in the frontier zones um, might not affect the other uh, you know, other zones as much. So, um, and, and a lot of these things go together. So, like fresh water supply, that's a that's a, another environmental issue, um, but it's also tied together too because you know, we have a really good fresh water supply in this country. Uh, we have more water than probably any other island or any other country in the Caribbean in terms of potential because of all those mountain ranges. So we've got. This ability to capture so much water that right now, unless there's a drought, we generally have decent overall in terms of numbers. We have good water supply for for our uses, both for drinking and for agriculture. But there's all these other things go with it. So when people do have deforestations, like you were noting, they you know the ability of the watersheds to absorb water uh, directly affect the amount of water available for other for other users. Uh, it increases if we have deforestation, it increases flash flooding. And soil erosion, which decreases, which also decreases water quality. So, you know, and that goes all the way back down to our coastal zones. So if we want to talk about environmental issues, the destruction of our coastal zones, both the manglers and the mangrove forests, and the coral reefs is also tied to deforestation and water quality. So all these things kind of kind of go together, you know. Like I said, I could, so I wouldn't pick one or two or three, they all go together, and we can even take climate change and put that on top of everything. You know, I don't, 
Like we contribute to our own climate change in this country, and we also are feeling the effects of it from from what's going on in the world. So, but nobody here really pays much attention to climate change except by talking about it. piece of a study that came out about a year ago now by German Watch, which is a German think tank, that they did a study, a 10-year study, on the, on the effects already felt in climate change around the world, and the DR was, was listed as the eighth most effective country already. You know, and they were predicting things like if things continue, if trends continue as they are, and, no, and we don't take the steps both worldwide for climate change and locally, uh, they're going to get much worse. For instance, they're expecting a 50% drop in rainfall in the Dominican Republic within the next 20 years if we don't take steps to mitigate climate change. You know, and that could be drastic. Obviously, some areas of the country are catastrophic droughts for the last, you know, five, six years. And then when the drought ended, the same region I was talking about earlier, you know, the drought ended, but then we had flash flooding. You constantly repeated flash flooding all back in November again, at November, December, January, I think the last ones were in March, where the same areas that hadn't been flooded in years, you know, maybe a one a once every 25 year event was happening three or four times a year. You know, and, and again, it all ties back to the same stuff. It's climate change, it's deforestation. So like some of these villages I was talking about that lost their coffee trees, you know, okay, they lost their coffee trees, so they cut them down to plant beans. And then all of a sudden the drought, and why? Because they died during the drought, but now the rains come back and the soil washes down and, they, and their, their own aqueducts are being destroyed because they're not absorbing enough water. And then when they do get all the rainfall, it, they, they, the sources are getting all polluted and sedimented. So yeah, it's an interesting, complex uh, issue. I, were, I used to go a lot to Evan Oberde. It's a scientific reserve up by Constanza. It's a beautiful place. And, and they've been doing it. It's been protected for about 30, 35 years now. Um, and they have their own weather station. You know, so when I was up there with the last group, and we had, we talked about climate change, and, and you know, with a group of students, and, and the guy uh, we were with, he said, "Yeah." I said, "Have you noticed change in weather?" He said, "Well, actually, it's a cloud force, so it's basically, you know, X amount of you know, a lot of rain year round." He said, "We get the same amount of rain, if not even a little bit more, but it comes in more concentrated periods. You know, so i.e. more more heavy rainfall, more flash flooding." I mean, obviously it's a reserve, so it's very well protected within it, but what's coming above it and what goes down below it is not. So it does affect, and the fact that the patterns are changed are changing the, the, the species that live there. Because they have several species that are endemic just in that little, uh, you know, 25 square kilometer zone that live just there. But if they're, you know, cloud forest species, and all of a sudden you don't have that, you know, 345 day a year cloud cover with mist, and now it's down to 300, those species are going to adjust or they're going to, to go extinct. One of the other major impacts that the DR is already seeing or is predicted to see in 20 years as a result of climate change. In addition to the rain mm -hmm. change, the water change, what are the other major impacts that we're expecting? Well, I that I don't know officially, officially, but I would obviously if we have climate change expecting the increase of, of coastal, you know, so like flooding in the coastal zone. So we have several areas that are very uh, prone to coastal flooding. I'm thinking mostly Nagua, which is up on that north coast between Port of Plata and Samana. They would be very susceptible. 
and actually uh, the southwest. Uh, we talked about the, the place that's 40 kilometers, uh, 40 meters below sea level. That's Lago Riquillo. And Lago Riquillo is basically, uh, used to be that whole zone in between the Bay of Barahona up through uh, Lago Riquillo and then La Casuela, which is the largest lake on the Haitian side, and then cutting through off the southern peninsula of, of Haiti. That all used to be a sea corridor. That was all just, that's why if you go to like Lago Riquillo, you will find mangroves, you will find the remains of old coral and things like that. You know, and the rocks are all um, karst type rocks that used to be seabed. So those, if we have, uh, if the oceans rise, those that sea corridor will become will reclaim itself. So it'll come into sea corridor again. And actually, it's happening because, for instance, we're very you know depending on rain powder patterns, it's very close now to that La Casuel and and uh, Lago Nerquillo will join up again because at one time it was all one. So there are times now when when we get heavy rains that the like Himani, which is a border town. It's basically underwater sometimes a year, you know, that portions of it. Um, when we talk about deforestation, and, and there is a lot of cutting down, legal cutting of trees for charcoal use, which is a Hades principle form of cooking fuel. So it used to be they would cut down trees in places like where you live in Rio Olympio and make charcoal and then, you know, carry them across or get mules and take them across the border. In the south, they take them by boat now. They can crop because La Casuel has risen so much that it's now crossed over to the other side so people can take so people at night can take a boat across the border and don't have to do any um, land crossings. Lago Riquillo is interesting because it has a, an island on that's outside of La Descubierta and the Isla Carrita, which is an island within the lake, um, and it's lost half of its land mass in the last fifteen years. It's sad too because it's a home of two different species of iguana living together, which is very rare. One is the the Rhinocerante, I believe, which is more common, it's found in several of the islands. The other one is the Record, which is an endemic Dominican species of iguana. The interesting thing is they live in the same, they share the same habitat. But with, with climate change and the water rising, or both in Lago Merquia and areas around it, that it's getting more endangered because it's losing its territory. That's basically the only part of the world that it lives. This all sounds pretty grim. I was getting a little depressed just talking to Tim about the situation, so I asked him if there was any hope. This is what he had to say. We have a Minister of Environment right now, uh, Domingos Brito, who's very serious about protecting the environment, even if it means stepping on toes. He's gotten in trouble and he's, there have been a lot of protests against it because he's literally, for instance, one of our national parks up in, in, the, in, the, in the upper watersheds of uh, the Cordillera Central, uh, has basically farmers and ecotourism projects and all those kind of things within the park and they've been asked and ordered and by law told they have to leave for 20 years and nobody's taken them out well they're finally taking them out and it's created problems but there were people up there you know there were small farmers up there who you feel for but there are also large farmers up there who had dammed up rivers with 12 inch pipe to channel water to irrigate crops, you know, so it's not subsistence farming and it's not, you know, large people doing it along with development projects and large cabanas and things like that. So, you know, and it is a national park and it's been a national park since before 2000, the year 2000. So it's already 17, I think it was established in the late 1980s. Um, so, so there's an example of something that's good that's happening. Same kind of issues going on in, in Los Artesis, the National Park Board in the East, Sauna, Bay Area. 
fact, I was talking to a Peace Corps volunteer just a couple weeks ago who's from there, and she was in the backside of it. She was saying how, yeah, they're kind of worried because you know, the government's kicking people off of their farms. And I'm like, and where are you at? And she, they're farmers who are in, in the national park farming root crops, Yeltia and things like that. So that, and that's you know, easy feel for them, but it's a good thing because if, if you keep making exceptions, um, you're going to be running out of things to accept for. Uh, the government just announced a huge solid waste management project with like 10 target cities uh, in Santiago. They're talking about getting a huge uh, energy production facility at the city dump so they can start turning some of that solid waste into energy uh, as opposed to just dumping it in it. Uh, and they're supposed to have a big component in this national ad program for reuse, recycle, reduce. So. That's a positive. If it works, that's a positive thing. And there are actually there are a lot of good uh, recycling projects going on. We've got some stuff here. Did you bring your pop bottle? <laughs> uh, so there's things going on in terms of solid waste. Um, I think you know, and the government has some programs. I think what I most like about I think well, the one place I'm hopeful, at least in the Dominican Republic, is that there is more and more an attitude of no, we have to protect our natural resources, and it's not just local. It's not just the people in. Uh, Los Aitises, or Lo, not just people right around Los Aitises say, well, we need to protect this park, or some people right along a river that say, no, you can't take the gravel out of it. It's, it is a, you know, a, a national movement, so we say. Um, a lot of the support for what the minister is doing in these two national parks obviously isn't coming from local, local, because the farmers that live in those communities feel, but he has lots of support from the scientific community, from the civil society in big, in big cities like like Santo Domingo, Santiago. You know? So that's a positive thing. You know? The press is very vigilant now about environment. Um, sometimes people, so people are aware of it, they support it. It doesn't always translate into personal uh, into personal habits. You know, so people complain about the garbage, but you still might see somebody driving down the street and toss their bottle out in the air. Yeah. So okay. sometimes that doesn't quite click through yet. Sure. But I, I've seen I've seen improvements. So I'm, I'm not totally pessimistic. Not totally pessimistic. I don't feel very reassured by that, but it is the reality of the current situation. On a positive note, Tim shared with me a story about how the Peace Corps Environmental Program had an impact here in the Dominican Republic. It's a good illustration of the kind of work that Peace Corps does to support the needs and desires of our community members. We had an environment program here up through 2000. In 2010, 2010 was the last intake of volunteers for the environment program. So by 2012, 2000, yeah, 2012, the end of 2012, they were gone. So the program officially ended. Okay. So it, it was one of the first programs. So, it, and when we were talking about the impact, it ties to what I was saying about I'm, I'm positive because of attitudes. And I think the Peace Corps did a really good job in the environment. It's not because they planted X amount of trees or because this and that and this, because they had a very strong impact of changing people's mentality about you know, the environment that's important is important for everybody. And, and here's my example why. And when in 2000, I want to say 2008, in Los Aitises, on the edge of Los Aitises here, just outside of the capital, you know, the park comes almost all the way over to, to, to San Domingo on the backside. Um, so on the edge of that, there, were, there are abandoned sugarcane fields. So in one of those uh, sugarcane fields, uh, the city is called Gonzalo, 
the owned by the Dominican government, they decided to lease this land to a cement company. Okay, so the cement company was going to come and establish a factory here on this sugarcane land. And one of the prime, and why? Because A, they were getting it very cheap. B, it's uh, one of the prime components of cement is lime. So if you've got all these limestone rock formations, they can, right there, they can pull them all out and, and mine it and make produce cement very cheaply. So and in fact, they announced that they didn't really announce this project until the, all the contracts were signed. And but when the civil society found out about it, they were up in arms because a it was a it was a an abusive contract. They were giving it to them for for pennies for land that they were it was leased. So it wasn't being sold; it was leased. But what basically they're doing is saying, take this and for pennies, you're going to. It might seem like a lot for a global amount, ten million pesos a year or something like that. But when you think about how much it was per square meter, it was virtually nothing. And 20 years later, they were going to give you back a hole in the ground because they're going to mine it. But the but and the worst part is, see, this is right on the edge of national park. Right now, we talked about fresh water. The largest reserves of fresh water for the for the island are in subterranean waters coming out of those ideas in the east. So these are all waters that are, that are still basically untapped, and they're fresh, pure water supplies. And and they flow. You wouldn't realize until you get into some of those caves and things out there that how, how, how that water, you think it's just sitting there. It's not. It flows underground. Um, so if you were to mine this area, you're going to contaminate. Cement factories are some of the most contaminating factories in the world, both water and air. Particularly air, but if you're mining places where there's water, they're going to contaminate that too. So the civil society found out and started protesting. And it became, and it wasn't just a low, in fact, the people in Gonzales were happy because, ah, jobs. But... When the civil society found out, they you know started the press came out. And within two weeks, there became a bit of a use movement at the site. So they literally did a '60s style sit-in, and they went in. They set up a tent city, and they were doing education for the the, the, the local population about what really happened with this factory. They did a sit-in so that the big dump trucks couldn't come in, and bulldozer could come in to start leveling off the the, the, the rolling hills yet. Um, and it was so, and it multiplied. It was there. It's mostly people from Santo Domingo, but it multiplied. So there became similar protests, but localized in places like Santiago, Puerto Plata, um, La Vega. So other youth people were informing people, and they were protests very ordinary. You know, they were giving out pamphlets and saying no to this mine. And you know, it was multiplied over the country, and it came so strong that they could. They had to stop working, and within about thirty days, sixty days, the government said, okay. We're going to turn this decision over to the UN Development Agency, the PNUD. So they literally said, because they said they had an environmental impact study, but nobody ever saw it, and nobody was involved in its processing. You know, it's in its uh, no, no one had a chance to see it before the contract was signed. But basically, turned over the PNUD, and the PNUD came in and brought their experts to evaluate if this was an economically and environmentally sound project. And almost a year later, they said no, and the government backed down. And it's the first time that the government ever backed down. So you're talking you know, $200 million project that, that was going on here. So the fact that the government had to back down and say no, it was, it's the first time I'd ever seen it. And it all came about from grassroots youth. It wasn't some NGO, it wasn't some other company. It was grassroots and youth. So that's where I'm hopeful. It's a, and that's an example of Peace Corps, because Peace Corps did a lot about that. Like, through the environment, through all volunteers, since we all tend to have a, you know, we all might do something for Earth Day, or we all might, you know, just you know, in our own ways, do a little composting or recycle or talk about, you know, take our kids to the beach when they're not anywhere near the ocean. 
So all that kind of stuff really plays into like, having people be more aware of what the environment's all about. Thanks to Tim for sitting down to talk with me about ecology and the environment here in the Dominican Republic and on the island of Hispaniola, and of course, for all the work he does for Peace Corps. You can find more episodes of El Cuerpo de Cuentos on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts. 